You're the first episode of the new, I guess, rejuvenated life of mine. That's uh, the you know, money of mine's taken its own little yeah, yeah. journey, and uh, life of mine is all about the stories of the people. And you have got the ball back rolling, mate. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's absolute, absolute, absolute pleasure. Um, I, I forgot to ring, actually ring, Mr. Mark Bowden on the way here to get a bit of uh, dirt on you from the. The old Leonard Shelf days. Yeah, there's no shortage of it. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get a call from him when he hears this. Yeah, a bit of a validated few stories. Yeah, I think so. Right, mate. Give give the spiel. Tell us a bit about what you're up to now. And we're going to go right back to the start of how you got to this stage of your uh, corporate mining career, Colin. Yeah, right. Uh, so, well, what am I doing now? Uh, I'm the managing director of Medallion Metals. We're an advanced gold and copper explorer. We've got a portfolio of assets down in the southern gold field centered around Ravensthorpe. Um, there's a significant gold and copper resource down there, 1.3 million ounces. We're taking that through a feasibility study. We're really confident that there's going to be a mine built down at Ravy in the not-too-distant future. So uh, that's what I've been up to for the last six years, and we could probably get to how i sort of been through the medallion journey. But... Uh, how did I come to mining? Uh, that's a that's an excellent question. I and was it the plant? No, no, not at all. I grew up in southwestern Victoria in the country. Uh, my family was in the timber industry. Um, my father was a was a second generation sawmiller. He was harvesting native timber out of the the Otway Forest down there in southwestern Victoria, and that business. Uh, I spent my childhood at, if I wasn't playing footy or cricket or attending school, I was down there with dad, uh, running around with his Mack trucks and his D6 dozers and, and all the other great stuff. And it was just a fabulous place and a fabulous time. And, um, I desperately wanted to be part of that business, but as things have unfolded, the, the, the harvesting of native forest became sort of publicly unpopular and governments didn't want it to happen anymore, notwithstanding it was a renewable industry and it made a great product as we all, you know, the Jarrah over here in the southwest and, and some of the timbers over on the east coast were just amazing. But um, for whatever reason, Dad could see the, the writing on the wall and he said to me, look, you need to go and find something else to do uh, and go away to uni go and do it for five years. And then if the business is still here, once you've done it, then you can come back and, and join in. Uh, and so I went off to university, uh, started engineering at the University of Ballarat. And I was planning on doing civil engineering. This is back in the early Oh, it's nice to me. I started civil. I was, uh, yeah, two years of it. There you go. I didn't even know mining was a thing <laughs> like, until I got there. <laughs> that was exactly the same for me. But funnily enough, Ballarat had this, uh, connection with the School of Mines in Ballarat, which was a, a, a very old historic institution that had been training mining engineers and other mineral professionals for over a century. And that had become incorporated in the University of Ballarat. And I was thinking about being a civil engineer, but early 90s, the economy was pretty tough in Victoria. Um, Jeff Kennett was in, lots of job cuts going on, interest rates were high, and there looked to be not much work around for civil engineers, and I saw this mining option at Ballarat, didn't know a thing about it. Um, there was the historic stuff at Sovereign Hill and all the rest of it, but wasn't really aware of the scale and the importance of the industry, but they made a pretty important point to me. They said that over the last 25 years, they'd had 100% employment out of the mining faculty at Ballarat so I thought that sounded pretty good <clears throat> and I switched into the mining uh, stream in year three for the engineering degree and at the end of the third year I went on my first vacation student stint at the Telfer gold mine 
Oh, right. Could literally diagonal, could not get further away from Victorian. Pretty much, pretty <laughs> much, both in terms of temperature, uh, colour, everything. Um, so that was a that was a God, that was an eye opening experience. Like I lobbed there, having never been to WA, um, and up there in the heat, the most remote gold mine in the world at the time, probably is still now. Um, so what what did VAC work entail for you back then? Were you in the office or were you straight underground? Or? Straight underground. Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ, that would have been a shock to the system. So I got a, yeah, I, it was the underground department that picked me up uh, <laughs> and there was a fellow there, the underground manager, his name was Tony James. Yep. Um, he's a pretty well-known character here in WA. So oh, that's T, like TJ. Galena, yeah. Galena TJ. That's, oh, that's there correct. you go. Who is a board member of Medallion Medals now? There you go. So he gave me my first job way back then. Uh, it was in the underground department, and I went straight down the hole and I was stitching vent bags. Uh, I threw a few bolts um, over that three month period. Uh, you were up there. That was back when it was living. Uh, so there yep. was families up there, there was a school, uh, police presence, hospital all those sorts of things and people were doing a six and one roster in and out of there and so was that elton's then was elton the no, contractor elton had switched uh out for clough clough was the underground contractor there yeah yeah and so i was i was down the hole there and i spent the full 12 weeks there um no breaks you worked a short shift there was it was eight hour shifts uh and then on a saturday you worked a short shift and then sunday was off and Saturday night was typically pretty <laughs> rowdy. Uh, they had a contractor's camp there at the time. I think, what was it, the Boot Tree Inn or something out there. And uh, I was allowed in town. I was staying out in the contractor's camp. And uh, that was my first taste. And then things went well. And TJ uh, said to me, look, if you, if you get through the rest of your course, um, I'll offer you a job next year. So it was that that was Newcrest, eh? That, that was, was Newcrest. Newcrest then. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. And and TJ was working for Newcrest, yep. uh, managing the contractor. And at the time, they were they were doing owner owner operator mining uh, for the stoping and all the services and all that sort of stuff. And I think Clough had the development contract for the ore drives and the decline and all that sort of thing. So what what did Telfer look like when when you were there? Where were they down to? Yeah, was it deep? Like it obviously wasn't at the cave or anything. Then. No, nothing like that. <laughs> uh, there was a few holes into the I thirty, so they knew about it. Yeah. Um, the exploration decline had set off, uh, but they were mining the middle middle Vale Reef, which was the the original reef that the big pit went down on. So yeah. we were just mining the down dip extents of that. Uh, it's very high grade about a metre wide, shallowly dipping. Um, and then there was the M there was the M series reefs that were immediately below that and there was a little bit of work going on there. But they just started to think about getting down to the the real big ore body, which they're mining now. And that decline was probably I don't know, to be a couple of hundred metres in. They'd just gone through a big fault that had produced a heap of water. But yeah, that was that was early days, mate. Mm. Yeah, and what and you would think because that's being that your only mind side at the start, you're thinking this is just normal, not knowing that the that joint is not normal. It's one of like the hottest places to work in the country, and you go down there just thinking, um, "Geez, this bloody underground mining stuff." Yeah, well, <laughs> it was hard yards. I mean, the ground wasn't great, and the there was a fair bit of air leg mining going on in the drives um, and in the upper levels. Single boom jumbos, uh, <clears throat> um, air leg slots, some air leg stoping, but mostly single long holes getting punched out, um, having a wash down stopes and that sort of stuff. But it actually wasn't too hot underground. It was it was worse upstairs. Yeah. Um, so you, oh, because you wouldn't have been too deep. Yeah. It wasn't deep. No. Yeah. So you weren't running into the issues that they've probably got there now. So uh, yeah, it, it it was okay. It was bearable. Um, I loved it actually. Sorry, I reckon I had about 152 vomits at that joint. All work, all work, <laughs> all work related to the heat there. Yeah, yeah. So that that's how it all got started, and uh, I went back there after I finished my degree. So they give you the gig. Yeah, gave DJ me the gave you the gig. And Newcrest did 
something that was pretty cool back then. They had a they had a very uh, comprehensive uh, graduate program, and probably probably at TJ's direction, uh, he knew that some of these people that were coming into the business through the graduate program could one day be a manager, and so they needed to know. They needed to get some practical experience. And so they had a two-year graduate program. Oh, really? Newcrest at the time. And they put you through everything from stores, the lab. Uh, they stuck you in the mill for a while. You did the gold room. Yes, you never hear of that. You never hear of that, do you? No. Oh, it was a full it was a, exposure. It was a real investment in yep. people. And then, <clears throat> yeah, you did, did your time in the open pit on grey control, driving trucks. Uh, all that sort of stuff. And then then if you wanted to do your underground time, you could. And it was generous in that respect to me. So they, they'd put you down the hole and you'd work your way through over 12 months, um, do the service crew, on the boggers, charge up crews. Um, I never got to operate a, a jumbo or a long hole rig, um, but I managed to get on the end of an air leg for a few months. Oh, nice. Uh, pulling slots in and, and you know, generally ballsing that job up. How'd you, how'd you find that? It was challenging, mate. Um, you know, I'm not the biggest bloke in the world. Um, uh, pretty thinly framed, but, you know, I could muscle it up the hole and, and get it done. So it was definitely a learning experience. And look, it, it, the one thing it does is uh, permanently ingrain in you how hard that job is. Yep. And you never forget it when you find yourself in a supervisory role or, or a management role after that. So I'd imagine that Telfer era, there would have been some reputable, you've mentioned TJ, there would have been some other reputable characters in that underground environment that probably still float around today. Do any come to mind? Uh, yeah, they do. There's a there's a fella called Phil Hockey that I offsided for a long time. Um, uh, he was a fantastic bloke. Um, you know, we were pushing out some, some pretty long more drives with the air leg and a 151 bogger. Um, so I worked closely with him for a long time, learned a lot with him and, and we also socialized a bit. Um, and he had some good mates, Darren Gelbert, a few of these other characters that were down the hole at the time. Um, uh, and then yeah, the other people in the, in the mining department, there was TJ and then Murray Smith, who's now at Woolley. He was a mining engineer there at the time, Mark Morecambe. Um, who's now, I think, with Goldfields. I haven't seen him go for a long time, but all of those characters, it, it was a great place to be. I, I love Telfer. Um, never forget it. Did you immediately get the mining bug when you went there for your first back work? Like, oh, you're like, how cool is this? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think I was lucky that I was from the bush and I didn't, I didn't ever go to the city. I went to a regional university and then didn't ever live or work in a capital city. So to some extent, I, I wasn't aware of what I was missing, but I was perfectly happy up there. And then not long after I started full-time, the site went uh, fly in, fly out. So we went on to a two-in-one roster. Um, and then I came to the end of my, vac um, my graduation uh, period and then went on to the technical team in the underground department and that was a nine-and-five roster. Yeah. So in and out of Perth and... Yeah, it was it was a good setup. So when was it becoming pretty clear by this point the the timber mill wasn't going to see you see your return or well I was still within the five year remit for the old man. He said, oh. finish uni <laughs> and then go and do five years." And I hadn't I hadn't made it to the five years, but it was it was two thousand and one that the business eventually shut down back home. Now uh, I left Telfer in ninety eight. TJ. Uh, decided that uh, he was going to uh, up stumps from Telfer and he went up to the Leonard Shelf to work for Western Metals. Why, don't, why not go somewhere hotter? It's just a bit hotter. <laughs> yeah. So he took off up there and then about a month later, I get the phone call and he said, you better come up here and give us a hand. And so I pulled the plug and that was in 98. And then I went up to Broome and I was living in Broome and working as a production engineer. I think the first gig was a production engineer there at Polara when they were just developing that project. Uh, and I ended up spending six years up there, but it was during that time that the writing was on the wall and yeah, mining was going to be what I was going to do for a career. And, um, and that's the way it went. 
Yep. So, and we mentioned, so yeah, because so up at Leonard's Shelf, you have Pilara and Kapok. They were two separate mines, were they? Yeah, they were 70 kilometres apart. So there yeah. was Pilara. Uh, originally, it was all built around Kajibut, uh, which is where the airstrip was. And there was a there was a processing plant there. And, and that was an ex-BHP project. Um, very rich, flat dipping, sort of six to 10 metre wide wall body. It was just... Just a remarkable thing. Lead, so was it lead, zinc, lead and zinc? A little bit of silver, but yeah. but not really anything to to write home about. But uh, high grade, probably seven percent zinc, seven percent lead. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, so that that makes sense now. Why TJ's a Galena? Yeah, it's yeah. Come from Scalaris or yeah. he knows something about uh, lead and zinc ore and floating that stuff. Uh, so, and then there was so it was all. It was all sort of started around Kajibut, but then there was Kapok, which was found about two kilometres to the west. It was a deep ore body, steeply dipping, started about 400 metres below surface. Uh, and then there was a there was Palara up the road, but there was this tiny little mine in the middle called Gunjua. The, the locals used to call it Goontown. Um, and it was these pods. There was these caverns of the limestone, the water coursing through and it opened up these pods and then the mineralization came through and filled them up they were like giant easter eggs yep and yeah it was a it, it was a funny little mine it was a little rabbit warren um but it was room and pillar and these big massive ore bodies and and it was relatively cheap and and easy and safe to to run and it was yeah it was a good little project so i did some time there as a shift boss that's where i got my first shift boss gig <clears throat> bit of time there uh and then i eventually wound up at kapok um and that was a mine that tj was instrumental in building and something a bit unique about that one was they had a conveyor belt from surface down two legs of a decline and then into the crusher that was underground and and then it started 400 meters below surface it, it was hot uh, that was that was the hottest place i've ever been yeah and what what temperatures are we talking for that uh, so the the water was coming out of the face at about 60 degrees. Oh. And, you know, the middle of the wet season, you'd start, the, the wet bulb was 32 before it even got started, and then you stick it down yeah. the rise and auto compression and all the rest happens to it, and it's it's pretty pretty hot down there. So, you know, obviously ice vests and cool rooms and, and dehydration was a massive focus. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Ice vests, that'd be good for good for the first five minutes. Yeah, that's, that's Mel- about as useful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, but we we tried everything. Um, but and that that was that was in '98 when we were doing a seven seven roster there. Yeah. That's how because it was hard on people. So that's why that even time roster was going all the way back then. That was the was that one of the first even time rosters in WA? I think so. I yeah, so. Halara and that. Yeah, and for that reason. Yeah, yeah. So you worked alongside uh, Mr. Bobert and, and Mr. Garbellini up there, I hear. Uh, yeah, that is correct. That uh, that was a real learning experience. Uh, so do tell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So production engineer. I was the production engineer, and at the time, Mick Garbellini and Mark Bowden were on the same swing. Uh, but day and night shift jumbo operators, <clears throat> and they had a loyal band of followers on each shift, and which yeah, they, no one, had, no one would hear a bad thing said about either of them. Um, but I remember them that at the end of the shift, uh, one of them would jump out of the ute, and then there would be this enormous row, screaming match between the two of them. You know, you you set me up last night, or or something along those lines and it was just abuse being hurled in it and i came to learn later on that they just did it it was all show oh let's do it it was to put the blokes that were on the shift on the back foot a bit that, you know this is how hard and rough these blokes are and they'll just tear strips off one another but it was all it was all it's just it was choreographed oh he's not he's not a silly man <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah there's there's no flies on either of those blokes um, <laughs> So they were, but on a serious note, you know, extremely, you know, they just went a million miles at everything. Um, 
and and did a great job. And then over time, they became, I think, probably got their first shift boss jobs, and and then eventually Garbo uh, became an underground foreman there. And over a period of time, I also got my first underground manager's role uh, while I was at KPOC, and I was only 26 at the time, so uh, I was still pretty green and had a lot to learn, but. Garbo and and Bowdo for that matter and a few of the other blokes there um, shepherded me along uh, enough to not make any blues that were too big or irrecoverable. So that, yeah, I'll, I'll always remember those guys and there were some other ones as well, um, Big Rod Hanson, The Rock Ape and Mick Armin and those fellas, they, they were great to work with and um yeah, it was a it was a fantastic sport. Actually, I learned a lot. Um, things I'll I'll never forget. Do you do you look back? Where do you look back on the first underground manager gig? Um, how do you reckon you went with it, considering oh, your age? Look, I I got it because no one else wanted it. Um, that's that's how that happened, and it's often how these things come about. <laughs> and so uh, it was not that I was qualified for it, or or anyone particularly believed I was capable of it. But um, the general manager at the time. Again, who's a, who's been a great mentor for me over the journey, Richard Jordanson. TJ had left by this time. He'd, he'd then gone down to run Canana Bell, I think. And, uh, yeah, so Jordo thought it would be a good idea if, if I stepped into the role. And, look, it was a battle. Um, took me a while to get the planning right. We, were, we weren't we were organised early on. Uh, but then we got organised, things settled down. Um, we went through a few processes there, but we had good supervisors, good people. Uh, then we got some better kit in and, and getting organized was the key to it. Um, the planning process there took a bit of, uh, ironing out, but once we did, the thing settled down. Um, and then when it settled down, it was productive and it was safe. And then, so on that basis, I think we did a pretty good job. So how long did you, you said you did? Six years up there? Yeah, living, living, years in, up there. living in Brew? Yeah, living in Brew. Um, when I was doing the shift boss stuff, we were week on, week off, but in the technical roles, it was it was typically five and two. Um, so uh, you'd go in early on a Monday morning and you'd come out at lunchtime on a Friday. And so you had this sort of semblance of a normal life in Brew, which was really good. Yeah. Played footy, played cricket. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a pretty good lifestyle up there for six years. Jeez, you wouldn't know yourself in this. I know Broome's beautiful in winter, but uh, you, your only exposure to WA in these early times are like Leonard Shelf and Delpha, like, and living in Broome. So you you wouldn't know yourself in this sort of normal temperature in Perth these days. No. Well, from, I'm sure you went after that, but yeah. Yeah, you, you, yeah it's funny how you adjust to it. Um, I went up to Octo- went up to Broome in October, just gone with my father, and um, he always loved it up there. But yeah, that, I'd forgotten about how hot it was mm. um, and humid. But it's a glorious lifestyle. Yeah. What were your, I guess, what were your aspirations once you've hit, you've hit your first underground manager gig um, in this industry? You're thinking that you probably weren't going to be in, uh, considering the timber history. But right, you're you're into it now. You you've You've climbed the ladder. Where did you see yourself going from there? Because we'll get to your little pivot that you did oh, right or off. Yeah. Well, over, over the whole period of time, or a lot of the period of time I was at Western Metals, the the business was struggling. They, they'd made some decisions uh, on the corporate level. They'd done an acquisition uh, and it put them behind the eight ball. And there were some other things going on Related to the way the business was financed, the the some hedging that they'd done uh, that meant that we were we were always we always seemed to be at some sort of uh, milestone in relation to our bankers wanting to to pull the drawbridge up, and so there was always this uncertainty, and it it didn't help anyone uh, for a lot of the time, and we were. I remember the Leonard Shelf in particular was knocking out zinc for, you know, something like forty cents a pound at the time, and then the price of zinc was was sixty or seventy cents a pound, and yet the business was going backwards, and I couldn't, I could never work out why that was, because we were below the 
you know, the cost of production was way below the, the price at the time. But then eventually, I think it was in 2004, 2003, I can't remember exactly, but uh, the business was placed into administration. And uh, yeah, the administrators came up, um, everybody was let go. There was a, there was a crew kept on to, to close things down in an orderly fashion. Uh, and I was one of those people, I was, uh, me and Rod Hanson, I think we lived out there at Kajibut by ourselves for about three weeks or, or a month and, and cleaned everything up and then eventually bolted the gate on the portal and, and drove back to the head office and handed the keys to the ute over to the administrators and that was it, flew out of there. So that, that was the end of that. And I could never work out why it was it went that way. And I thought to myself, well, I need to work out what's going on on the capital side of things. This business is really capital intensive, and how is it that they get into trouble like that? If you want to be a if you want to be a senior executive, I guess you've got to know a bit about that. So, uh, the time in Broome came to an abrupt end. Uh, I packed up the Ute. I didn't have too much other than a boat that I used to go barra fishing in, and a set of golf clubs and some some clothes, and that was about the extent of my. Personal possessions, and I hit the road and went down to Cal, and I parked up in the Boulder Caravan Park and uh, got one of those A-frame units there. They're still there, and uh, and I got a job at it was for Perilia at Daisy Milano at the time, and it had just been acquired by Perilia off a private company, and uh, there wasn't much going on there, but. I did that gig for about six months. There was they were rehabbing the decline, putting some mesh in. McMahon's were there doing that, and uh, drilling a few diamond holes from underground. And then I'd applied to do a business degree in Melbourne at Melbourne Business School, so I'd submitted that application while I was up there, sort of shutting down Kapok. And was that more the in wanting to know what's going on on the finance side? You're like, this is. That, was that a bit of a trick, bit that, of a trigger for it? That was part of it. I remember people saying to me that you, you know, Western Mining's left a tremendous legacy in in WA and probably all over Australia and the world for that matter in terms of how that business was run and how it trained its professionals. So they would give them they would give them time in the head office or or other roles where they could broaden their horizons a little and get some commercial experience to overlay their operational and their technical experience. And the industry, the way it was, or the companies that I were working for were too small to enable that to happen. So I needed to find a way to get it myself. And that's why I that's why I headed off. And when I, when I got accepted into the MBA, um, I did it full time. I headed off and did it for 18 months in Melbourne, which was great because I get to be closer to friends and family back in Victoria. Um, and that's... That's how I got that extra qualification. Um, I don't think you know the, the the actual academic qualification doesn't qualify you to do much. Really, you've got to go and get that experience somehow. But then, off the back of that, before I'd finished the degree, um, my old boss from Western Metals, Richard Jordanson, um, had taken a role with a company that was called Sally Malay at the time. It's now Panoramic. It was being run by Peter Harrells. Um, again, another person that's been really uh, prominent um, in terms of being a mentor for me and, and guiding me in my career. And Pete was starting Sally Malay and they were commissioning the um, what's now the Savannah Project but was originally the Sally Malay Nickel Project up in the Kimberleys. And I went in, I joined them in a what was called a financial and technical analyst role. Yeah, right. And we, I did all sorts of things, but because I had a first class mine manager's ticket, I eventually got, you know, sucked back into, you know, filling in for someone on site. And then we, we also went and took a bulk sample out of the, the Panton project, um, which is in future metals now. Um, that there was about 60 Ks down the road from, from Sally Malay. And, um, so I ended up doing that sort of stuff, but, but I was also doing, uh, lots of financial analysis on BD opportunities and, we had a we'd borrowed some money off off the bank Macquarie going us down at Macquarie many of them are still there and uh, that loan sort of wobbled a couple of times but um, but I spent a lot of time sort of trying to calm them down um, and and modelling scenarios for them and all that sort of thing and then but eventually we got through all that and 
and the the projects were really well run and the nickel price helped as well and then sort of yeah Sally Malay became panoramic and it sort of took off through there in 2008 and then and that's where the bend in the road happened oh yeah yeah so would you god would you call it a well it's not a bend it's not a, it wouldn't have been a u-turn but it's it was definitely a, uh definitely set you up for today many many people call it yeah did you're going to the dark side. So, <laughs> it was it was two thousand late two thousand and six, and commodity prices had started to rip, and uh, particularly base metals, and things were going on all over the place. China boom, it was, and um, and the bloody everyone America going off with the subprime. Well, it hadn't happened. It, it wasn't the crisis, but it was you know all, it was, everything was flying because they're making all this money off these bloody. Uh, mortgages everything was flying and it was yeah perth was perth was on a tear property prices and the rest of them i remember um really vividly and then uh this opportunity came up to join uh rand merchant bank um rmb resources which was the resources financing business for for rmb and that was based in sydney and uh i spoke to pete harold about the opportunity and he sort of gave me his blessing to go and have a crack at it um, on the condition that I came back and worked for him if uh, if I didn't like it. So uh, I ended up taking the job and I moved over to Sydney and REB was a small team of people, about a dozen of us. We was, there was offices in Sydney, Melbourne, Denver, Joburg and London and we were doing resources finance to the junior end of the sector Um all over the world in different commodities, uh, different jurisdictions. Uh, and we did everything from plain vanilla project finance and hedging right through to private equity and everything in between. And uh, yeah, that was a fascinating period of time. And yeah, I, I learned a huge amount about how the industry finances itself and, and gets things done. Is it uh, big hours in that whole finance world? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, you. you the, I probably about, especially when you're starting and you're like, you know. Well, I talked about learning robes, and and, uh, and that's that. You know, some in some instances that's a transactionally driven business. So something just comes along and you need to get it done. Yep. So you throw everything you can at it. Um, but then in other respects, you could see things coming as well, and and that sort of even things out. So it wasn't it wasn't that you know horrendous amount of hours that you hear about people having to do um in the banking sector it was a bit wasn't that wasn't that kind of intense um but it was i, I worked with a fabulous bunch of people who yeah taught me a lot pretty patient with me i think um but i always felt a little bit like a fish out of water and at some point in time i wanted to get back on the other side yeah yeah so how long did you do it for nine years Nine years. Yeah, yeah. I started in Sydney, did three years there, did a little bit of time over in Denver, back yeah. and forth, and then ended up in Melbourne. Uh, yeah, um, there and with BNP the whole time. With RMB. RMB. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Nine yeah. years with them. Nine years with them. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah. That's, again, the guys that I worked for there, Michael Schoenfeld and and Arnold Vogel and Rob Gray and John Ford, uh. And, and all the other guys in the business as well, they 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 taught me a lot. They were pretty patient with me. And um, we did some really interesting transactions. Um, a lot overseas, but also a couple here in Australia that were that were pretty pretty fascinating. Um, uh, RMB financed Northern Stars acquisition of Paulsons. Oh, right. Um, back in 2010, I think it was. That happened really quickly. Uh, but it was a but it was a fabulous deal, and and Northern Star just shot the lights out, and that that money came back to us really quickly, and yep. you know that got just went went on to shoot the lights out, and and the rest is history, really. Because what was that? So that was there was the fifteen the fifteen mil up front that they had to put in. Was yeah, that? I, th I can't. No, sorry, it's, I think it's a seventeen. It got it got revised. But uh, I think because it, it was twenty, I know it was twenty-seven, and then uh, uh, it got revised up to forty. Yeah, intrepid. Uh, but a lot of those were contingent yeah, payments. Yeah. Uh, and we put, I think we put fifteen in 
uh, and then there was some vendor finance and other bits and pieces. But but uh, you know, to Bill's credit, uh, he 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 got that project singing really quickly, and it started generating cash, and it repaid all the all the finance, and then he was able to go and leave that to do some pretty spectacular stuff. And then the May, yeah, amazing, amazing. Well, I was I was one of the first. Um, engineers to work there for there was me and another guy oh, right. two engineers at Paulson's when uh, uh, right. before after they took over so that was my right. I did I did eighteen months there then I left after my underground time so Bill and Stroll been yeah. all the bloody free promos I've done for Bill and Stroll <laughs> I've been making that up yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think Jonesy was there. Jonesy was the GM yeah, so he, you would have worked with him at Catchy yeah well Catchy Agent, you know, we yeah yeah taught him everything. <laughs> but he's he's a he was at Ballarat. Um, oh, that's right. Up. Yeah, of course. So he came from that side of the country as well. But um, yeah, that was good. And, and the year before we we did well, it was a long lead up to that one, and it was and it predated me. But um, RMB had been investing or supporting Saracen for a long period of time and uh, equity investments and, and other things along the way. And then eventually uh, we financed the the restart there of Karasu Dam back in yep. 2009. Um, it was a $20 million loan, I think, with some hedging um, because it was a restart of a of a old mill or it wasn't an old mill, but um, they refurbed the mill and then got the open pits going. And again, you know, that's where I ran into rally and or actually – I'd met Rally. He was working for Sally Malay uh, a couple of years yeah. previous, but you know, then again, managed to get the business up and running really quickly, and then again, the rest is history. So it was always fascinating to see how those two businesses actually went eventually came together, mm. um, and and watched. Yes, got to see it. We had a sort of front row seat to how they got started. But you could you could claim some. No, some of the results. I think no, no. If you didn't give Bill that finance for that that fifteen million bucks, that whole thing, they wouldn't own the super pit. Yeah, look, I, I had a fair bit of supervision and and people very nervously uh, watching what we were going to do there. Well, then, and especially in the given the context, because I think Northern Star were only five or seven million dollar market cap then, and then something like that, and yeah. then capitalized bought a mine for forty million. I know there was a lot of payments i think it was i think it was what 57 and a half and 62 and a half thousand ounces the payments got put yep, forward yep, and, yep but there was still that there was that 15 million up front and i think they had to top up another two and a half for the new deal and like that was a, that's a big a big acquisition for a company that's five to seven million dollars yeah it was it was tight i remember the, the financial analysis suggested that if the mine plan was right there was enough to get the the bank out and and the vendor, uh, but then not much left over for the shareholders. But um, uh, you know, again, the rest is history. There was a lot more there. Yeah, very much so. Now, when did I guess when you decided that I guess that you wanted to get back in the mining game? Yep, yep. Uh, well, it had been on my mind, um, and then RMB decided to close its resources financing business. Yep, uh, which. Yeah, at the time, was a surprise, but looking back on it, probably wasn't. Uh, and th- they took an interesting approach in that they they wound down the books instead of selling the business. So they actually ran down the loan book and ran down the equity book. And uh, and so we were given a lot of runway. We were told that th- this is all coming to an end, and you've got I can't remember what it was, it was six to eight months or something like that to go and find what it is you wanted to do next and. And they'd, they'd support us through that transition. And the team looked at uh, doing some other things, whether we whether we started another fund ourselves or looked at um, looked at other businesses or other locations to get started again. But my heart wasn't really in being on the investment side uh, for the rest of my career. I did want to get back on the industry side. And as things drew out and a couple of the team members started to drift off and go and do their own things. And then after that, um, everyone looked as though they were going their separate ways. And and then I made the call to do that as well. Uh, and I had a stab at a couple of things, which didn't go very far, but I bought myself a ticket to Diggers in 2016, it was. 
Uh, so got a delegates pass, and you know if you've ever been to Diggers, you get the you get the name tag, but it's got your name and then who you work for underneath it. And because I'd bought the ticket off my own bat, I was I just didn't I didn't have an employer, and it was an amazing what a conversation starter that was. So, oh really? Yeah, yeah. So you're just running around, and and people would say, oh, who are you working for? And the response was always, well, I'm not working for anyone. I'm actually looking for a job, and and then that led to so many opportunities that those couple of days I was there, I ended up actually driving back to Perth early because uh, there was a couple of interviews lined up. And one of them was with ACH Minerals at the time and, and Ed, Ed Ainsco. And yeah, that was a mutual connection that was made at Diggers. And this person said to me, um, you need to go and speak to Ed. So I did that, came back to Perth and it was in this building where we're recording this. And uh, they ACH was uh, ACH Global was was like the business development um, business for um, the founders who are uh, Ian Junk and Darren Headley and Tao Lee and then and then their investment partner from China and they'd been really successful in an investment uh, not long before and that. It, that had enabled them to establish this business, ACH Global, which went around, which Ed was running. And um, Ed's now running London Metals, and I'll sort of get back to how this, that all fits in here. But he he was running that and signing CAs and doing due diligence on all sorts of things. And the industry was depressed at the time. I don't know if you remember back then, but it was hard. And um, I remember you know, West Perth was pretty desolate. There wasn't much going on there, and the equity market was struggling. And anyway, he... These guys had acquired uh, the assets, the great southern assets, out of Silver Lake Resources at the time, and um, this is the down. These are the assets that are now the, the foundation assets of the Medallion, and um, they just acquired them, uh, and they're about to. It was a joint venture agreement originally, but then they decided to buy the assets outright. There was the option there in the in the in the deal terms to do that when they exercised it and they own it a hundred percent and it took me a couple of months to go through the due diligence and the negotiations and all of that sort of thing but then um i liked what i saw I saw uh that i was working for mining plus at the time doing some contract work and i was able to take a look at the database um and i saw that there was some very consistent high grades at Cundit, um which is our flagship asset now and I thought, you know, this this thing can hang together, that it can grow, and I think you can you can commercialise it. it you, there's a mine here somewhere, <clears throat> um, and it, it had a bit of a chequered history. I, and the more research I did, I thought, oh, it, this asset has been the second fiddle. It's never been the focus of attention for the previous owners, and and there was reasons for that. Um, competing corporate priorities at the time, but I thought that if this got and the, and the owners were of this view too that this is the this is the asset that needed to be driven forward. It was a priority, and yet there was something there. So I took the gig on. That was in October of 2016. Um, my wife and I just had our second child, and we were based in Melbourne at the time. And then I got stuck into it. And then by February, the family was over here in Perth. Um, not long after we bought a house, it was in early 2017 and I've been working on it ever since. Um, and to the point now where we've grown the resource from 700,000 ounces of gold and a little bit of copper to 1.3 million ounces of gold and nearly 60,000 tons of copper. And there's a PFS underway now that, you know, I think is going to demonstrate that there's a technically and commercially viable project there. It's a it's a significant project in WA. There's not too many undeveloped gold projects of this magnitude around in a greenfield setting. So, yeah, we're pretty pretty optimistic about where it's going to go. So, where when was the ACH? When did that come or convert into Medallion? Yeah, in 2021, we yeah. listed it. Uh, it had been run as a private company for uh, five years. And did you take the MD role straight up? Straight away. Yep. Yep. There was no one else. Oh, there was the exploration manager was there. So he was employee number one and I was number two. And we took on an admin manager because we were running the camp. We, the camp came as part of the, the whole shebang. And 
we were renting the rooms to Mount Catlin, the lithium project down there. So that took up some time, but it generated a little bit of cash for us on the side. And we also took on another geologist and it was basically the four of us for almost four years. Did some, did a little bit of drilling, um, diamond and RC. We did some met test work, a lot of geotechnical work, permitted the project, um, all pretty low key. But then once we were comfortable that we had a handle on the resource, we re-estimated the resource, we understood what was going on there. There were some things that needed to be straightened out. We were confident about the metallurgy. We were confident it could be permitted. Then, then it was time to take it to the next level and, and go and list it. And so we listed it in, in 2021 with the help of Argonaut. And, um, and so we got it on the boards and, and subsequent to that, and the, the name change happened as well, called it Medallion. Um, my wife came up with that. Can't claim credit for that. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so subsequent to that, we've drilled 54,000 metres over the intro. About a third of it's been diamond. Um, it's been it's a structurally controlled ore body and we've needed to learn a lot about what's controlling it and we've needed to see a lot more of the ore body in the flesh um, because the RC sort of doesn't give you the clearest picture and we don't want to end up fooling ourselves. So, yeah, we've done a lot of diamond drilling, learned a lot about the ore body, what controls it, where it's headed. It's And geology in the, as well by the sounds yeah, in general. exactly. <laughs> yeah, look, at, you know, you always get that, when I started, it was always, you know, quite antagonistic between the mining engineers yeah. and Mets and, and the geos and, you know, the, all, the, all the typical sort of criticisms get flung each way. But I think these days it's sort of settled down a bit and everybody realises you need to be joined at the hip. So, um, you know, that's certainly the culture I'd want to want to promote in our business um, if and when we get to that point where we go and build it. So um, it needs it too because... The, the geometallurgy is really important um, at Ravi and in some respects it's been the reason why it hasn't been mined now but now that the project's gone to the scale it is it's you know that 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 issue sort of goes into the background a little bit and I think it's it's got a pretty bright future ahead of it so work the time in the capital markets how does that put you in good stead for the MD world do was it how valuable? Do you think that was? Yeah, it 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 tells you about the breadth of products and the sources of capital that are around to get these things done. What kind of risk appetite certain investors have uh, for certain stages of the project life? So that's really important. Um, it, being on the banking side, whilst we were equity investors and and RMB was really successful with an equity fund that had called Telluride. And that was basically off the back of the, you know, they'd often miss out on debt work after doing a lot of work and due diligence. And then they'd recognize that it was a great opportunity anyway. So they'd, they'd invest some money on the equity front. And, but that doesn't tell you, because I was on the banking side, it doesn't tell you much about the, the equity capital markets. So, you know, I was definitely deficient on that when I came into this role. Uh, but I've, I've seen up close and personal now how the sausage gets made. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's an art, not a science. That's for sure. It's and this period we're going through now, the you know, many people have called it the profitless boom. Like everything, <laughs> wages at wages are booming. Everything, yeah. well, M and A's yeah. booming, but there's a lot of um, yeah, companies like yourself and like trying to get something built. It just isn't. It isn't attracting the investment, and it's just a lot of a lot of the seems like a lot of people are on sitting on their hands with the that have the big dosh i guess yeah. me mentally going through this phase and when you you know you're you're responsible for for shareholders and everything yeah is it very challenging i assume yeah it is it is you got you got to have a thick skin that's for sure um don't check off copper <laughs> <laughs> now i've got someone that looks at that for me so you know, i get a fairly uh, regular feedback of you know it's like an instantaneous uh, character appraisal at that particular <laughs> platform, but anyway, um, it's not that it, you know that's not really important in the grand scheme of things. It ultimately, it, it's been a tough time uh, for us because we've essentially doubled the the, the content or the metal content of the, of the asset and watch the value of the business um, divide by two. So um, that, that's that been tough. You, you're not getting rewarded for it. 
Um, there is a there's a general market element to that, which is partly explains the issue. But then there's probably some some medallion specific reasons as well. And so we're always looking at that, seeing what we can do to improve, what we can do better. Um, but the one thing that I think you know keeps you on the straight and narrow is the quality of the asset. And if you didn't believe in that, then it, you're probably kidding yourself. So yeah. I'm in the fortunate position where there's an asset, a real substance there. It, in my view, it's going to be a mine. Whether we get to build it or not is another question. But um, next time gold equity sentiment picks up and goes, I think subject to a few things falling in place, there'll be a, there'll be a gold copper mine built at Ravensthorpe and it'll go for a long period of time. What's your, I guess, your excitement levels of potentially building a mine? Oh, look, I'd love to. I'd love to. I'd love to hang hang my hat on that. I think it'd be a, a real feather in my cap for my career if we if we took it from where it was when I first saw it to to all the way through, and then got to stand in the gold room and watch the first gold bar get poured. Um, that'd that'd be a tremendously gratifying experience. But ultimately, the what what's important is we generate the best outcome for shareholders. So if there's a better way to make that happen, then you know we're open to it, and it's all about them because they're the ones that have reached into their back pocket and um, and put some skin in the game here. And um, so we, we're just laser focused on what's the best outcome for them. Yep. Well, mate, we wish you all the best with it. Hopefully, uh, God, sometimes in this market, you just hope you get a bit of luck sometimes. That's right. So it's yeah. bloody, it's a bit dire for the junior end. Of the oh, yeah. So yeah, we're, looking, yeah. we're all looking forward to a turnaround, aren't yeah. we? We'll do, hopefully, we'll catch a lucky break at some point in time. Oh, mate, we'll be here to cover it for you, mate. <laughs> Don't worry. JD's a shareholder, so he'll be keenly watching. So yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, mate, will be rewarded. Yeah, thanks very much, mate. That was a good little bloody, thanks for being the first one to get the ball rolling. Again. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity, mate. That's uh, good, mate. Yeah, good on you. So, uh, all the best, and uh, may the may the share. Well, you don't, you won't be drilling much. I said, may the share price force be with you. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Good on you. Good on you, Cobber. Thank you. Thank you.